Jones. Welcome you all. I'm Alex Jones. I'm uh, uh, director of the Shorenstein Center on the Press, Politics, and Public Policy, and my, it's my pleasure today to welcome Vivian Schiller uh, to our, our Brown Bag Lunch series of speakers, provocative speakers, and speakers who have found themselves in interesting situations. Uh, recently? Yes. <laughs> Vivian was, was already like scheduled words. to come yeah. to uh, talk to us before uh, she had her, her sort of moment at uh, NPR, but I think that it's fair for you to understand something about Vivian. She studied Russian and Soviet studies at Cornell University. She then went to Middlebury where she studied Russian, and then she went to work for Ted Turner, the New York Times, and NPR. I don't know that there's a direct connection to the Soviet <laughs> Union. And, uh, there have been those that have tried to make a connection. <laughs> but I certainly think you have, uh, you have been in some, some, uh, uh, some complicated institutional uh, situations without question. Vivian was the person who really uh, converted NewYorkTimes.com from a good to a great uh, uh, website. One of the most successful, the most successful, I think, uh, newspaper websites in the world. And she then became uh, president and CEO of National Public Radio uh, until recently when, uh, <coughs> well, I will, I will let Vivian address that if she chooses to, <laughs> or we can do it in questioning. But her, her purpose here today is to talk about something broader than her own experience. And uh, we are very, very glad to have you with us, and uh, welcome. Thank you. I'm very, very happy to be here. As Alex said, I, I had planned to come. We set this date back in, I don't know, yeah. what, before these events, as, as we call them. Yeah. So, so my remarks are maybe a little bit different than what I had intended to, to talk about. But, um, so I, I just want to share a few thoughts that I've prepared, and then we can start open and talk about... Um, uh, whatever you want and, and I will I'll tell you right now so you're not waiting for it my remarks are not about the last few months so you'll either be glad or disappointed to hear that so I just want to say right now so you're not sort of like waiting for that but um, I want to start by talking about what uh, 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 some uh, what it's like actually for, for my open about what it's like to uh, to be out of work which I now am for the first time in 25 years and um, there's some good things um, you don't have to get dressed up. This is about as dressed up as I've gotten in the last um, few weeks. You don't have to brush your hair, although I did brush my hair for you. <laughs> you don't have to go to a lot of meetings. Um, and then the good thing is there's time for exercise, but the bad news is your refrigerator is a little closer than probably it should be. <laughs> so those two things um, even themselves out. But probably mostly the thing about uh, not going to an office every day uh, and not working for an employer uh, is that you finally, or at least it's been my experience, I feel like I finally have time to think. And that simply, it shouldn't be that way, but it just seems to not really be possible when you're working 80 hours a week. And um, even those long transcontinental flights that used to be a refuge are no longer with Wi-Fi, which is my, um, which gets my vote for both the best and the worst innovation of our time. So now that I've been taking my first real break in, in, in so long, um, I've been able to reflect. I've spent some time reflecting. Not that I have perfect clarity, God knows, but I've been reflecting on my experiences throughout my career, which you know have been were mostly in commercial media, and then the last few years in, in public media. And, and as Alex said, I've been lucky to work for some incredible institutions: Turner, CNN, Discovery, The New York Times, 
and PR. And I've also seen, of course, through my travels, many other media companies, news organizations of clubs, both in the for-profit realm and the not-for-profit realm. And having been on both sides, as it were, and, and now, at least for the moment, on the sidelines, I wanted to share what I think are a few lessons that public media and commercial media can learn from each other. And that's really what I want to focus on today. And I thought about presenting it as a PowerPoint, but that felt so seven <coughs> years ago. Or I could be really cutting edge and just not speak at all and just tweet it to you. <laughs> but I decided that I'm going to resort to that most ancient of platforms, which is the letter. So this is my gimmick for today. So here it goes. Dear Public Broadcasting, <laughs> and it's funny, Charlie, that you're here because you, you, you're also a recent convert oh, yeah. from commercial, so this will either resonate or not, <laughs> and you'll have to tell me afterwards. Dear Public Broadcasting, you gave me perhaps the best two and a quarter, <laughs> two years, three months, two days, four hours, years of my <laughs> professional life so far. And sure, the last few months were a little rocky for us all, but that doesn't erase all of the successes and fun we had growing audience and reinventing <coughs> the future of public media. But now that we're going our separate ways, there are a few things I thought I'd share with you, things I see now in public media that public media can learn for the for-profit guys and gals. And don't worry, because you'll get your comeuppance in a few minutes in the letter to commercial media. So there are four points. One, public, this is specifically to public radio, public radio. My wish for you is that you see yourselves in the context of the wider world of media, not just public media. You embrace the fact that you are now competing in the big leagues and are no longer the scrappy underdog. Look beyond your own public broadcasting borders. Become experts in developments across all media. The commercial guys get this better than many of you do. They know that their competitor is anyone and everyone who competes for attention and mindshare. Even just looking at radio, there's too much insularity. Public radio station up the street is not your competition, unless, of course, you're in Boston. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> nor, is, <laughs> nor is NPR your competition, even though we all get a little worked up about this issue known as bypass. And Lord knows commercial radio stations are not your competition because they can't deliver the quality journalism that you do. They can't even come close. But there is massive change on the horizon. Once internet radio goes into cars, which begins with this new car model here, I never thought I would learn so much as I have the last few months about car manufacturers, um, the monopoly advantage of the radio tower will begin to fade. New digital-only startups will enter the marketplace in audio, and you will find yourselves longing for the days that that competition was the public radio station that overlapped <coughs> your broadcast signal. Uh, prepare for that now. Think about the competitors who don't even exist today. Beat them at their own game. You have the competitive edge now. Don't lose it. The second lesson for public broadcasting from commercial media is competition is good. This is alive and well in commercial media. I don't feel it as much in public, public media as I, sh as I feel like I should have. Competitive, competitiveness leads to innovation and risk-taking. A desire to win is a great motivator for change. Take a cue from your reporters. They certainly are competitors and compete for stories. Bring that same sensibility to your approach to business. Three, planning and research should be your best friends. This is, again, something your colleagues in commercial media get. They set goals. They have roadmaps. The best of them know, as the old saw goes, that planning is everything. 
the plan is nothing. So they constantly adjust course, leaving room for innovation, but they have a destination in mind. They study their audience relentlessly, they analyze the competition, they rely on data and gut. I do not see enough of this in public broadcasting, though, and this is the, Charlie, where I was planning to say this even without you here, the except, there are exceptions, including the two stations, particularly BUR, <laughs> right here in Boston. Uh, this, this planning notion is especially critical to <coughs> the threat to government funding. Federal dollars appear safe for now, but they may not be around forever. State funding has shrunk considerably where it even ever existed. Plan for this now. And the fourth lesson from two public, from that, that public media could learn from commercial media, your continued existence is not guaranteed. Just because you are strong today does not mean that you will be relevant tomorrow. Some, com some commercial organizations know this, not all of them though, but it's a particular <coughs> risk to public broadcasting where public service can sometimes be confused with a public mandate. Don't get me wrong, public radio, you have earned your success through spectacular programming and a relentless focus on quality, but you have to keep earning in new ways. You must become your own disruptors. If you don't aggressively reach out to new audiences on new platforms, someone else will. There is no such thing as lasting media loyalty especially in this age of media promiscuity. Keep your eyes on the prize, which is the delivery of your distinctive public service content and your relationship with the listeners in your community. Let go of the nostalgia for how that content is delivered and how that <coughs> community is forged. Radio is a powerful medium, whether delivered over radio towers or internet protocol. Give the audience what they need, <coughs> how they need it, and you will be fine. So those are my four lessons for commercial, from commercial media to public media. And just know public media that I will be listening and reading and watching. Now, dear commercial media. First, I'm sorry for that name commercial media because it implies something crass, which is not what I intended. Because I have deep respect and optimism for the role, your role in the future of journalism. We had a couple of decades together and may be re reunited yet, we'll see. But in the meantime, I think there are a few things that you can learn from your cousins in public media that I want to share with you today. The first is that public service is a commercially viable business option. If there's one thing that has become, that became crystal clear to me during my time at NPR, there is a hunger for high quality information. There is an audience for that that is larger than you may think. For instance, at NPR, the combined audience for both broadcast listening to NPR programs and digital is 40 million and growing, unique. Listeners, that's accounting for uh, for overlap, duplication. Looking at the media that comes that's coming at us from all sides, it's easy to think that the audience wants dumbed-down content, and it's easy to fall into the school of thinking. Uh, it's easy to fall fall into that school of thinking, given how much unreliable information there is. I've learned that definitely <laughs> personally in the hard way, and the higher signal-to-noise ratio. But I would submit that the that the, there is a larger audience than ever for public media not despite, but because of all the garbage there is out there. Audiences will flock to quality and to brands they trust. They want you to be smart, and I believe they will pay for the privilege of not being talked down to. They do in public media, in public radio, which has the most successful paywall out there. It just happens to be voluntary. Second commercial media, grasp the opportunity in local. You national news organizations that are not focusing on local are missing the sing single biggest <coughs> uncharted territory in media today. The ad market in the last year 
the, uh, the local advertising market as a percentage of the total uh, uh, percentage of total advertising revenue in this country has grown in the last year from 30 to 40 percent, according mm -hmm. to the latest Pew study. Yet no one dominates it. Public radio gets this. They get the notion and the power of a national local partnership, and it works extraordinarily well. I think that is the secret sauce of public radio that it is local, it is community, and yet they're getting the quality national content woven together. If public radio can replicate this as they are um, on, uh, on track to do in digital platforms, they will truly be a force to be reckoned with. Newspapers, you've been hit hard, but you still dominate. Local television, get with the program. Startups, partner with each other. National news organizations need to figure this out or you are missing the boat. Third, commercial media, you got the planning part down. We already lectured public media about that in our other letter. But here's what uh, public media does better. They give ideas time to succeed, or at least time to fail in a way where there is something to be learned. Yes, I know that you have quarterly targets to hit, <coughs> fine, but I've seen far too many commercial enterprises kill an idea before they even know if it works, before they can even learn from their mistakes. I'm heartbroken. This is just one example. For exa example, about TBD.com. This was the Washington local site that was really going to be something special, or so it seemed. Um, they seemed to be on a really interesting idea. Maybe it would have failed, but there was no time to uh, find out because all Britain pulled the plug. Public media gets this. Some of them may be slow to launch, but they give ideas a chance. And four, commercial media. This is perhaps the most important lesson you can learn from public media. And that is to embrace your audience, not as customers, but as partners. And by that, I don't just mean <coughs> setting up a Facebook fan page or Twitter feeds. I am talking about an entirely different way of thinking about the relationship with audience. Public radio has this nailed for now. The notion of membership, here's the, here's the amazing thing about membership, and you all hear those pledge drives. And Charlie delivers them to you. The notion, the notion of membership is not just about revenue, although that's certainly important across all of public radio. All of the public radio, <coughs> local public radio stations combined for membership, it's about $300 million a year. The beauty of membership model is the loyalty that it generates, that intense loyalty and connection. The coffee mug, when somebody carries their WBUR coffee mug or tote bag, it is not just a commodity. It is a statement of community, and a, sta a statement not that I belong to that station, but that it belongs to me, and I belong to this community of listeners, that I am vested, that I have an emotional connection. This is a powerful thing for <coughs> any business, and I have not seen uh, commercial news organizations do this in quite the same way. So those are my lessons to commercial media. Uh, and finally, a plea to both sides of the media divide. And that is to work together. When I first arrived at NPR, I was informed with some small amount of pride, we don't partner very well. This is not a good thing, and we change that. Um, I've heard similar sentiments every place that I've worked and any place I've ever talked to. This is a huge mistake, not to mention a little bit arrogant. Uh, and I don't mean that partnership, <coughs> that we should embrace partnership in some sort of do-gooder way, but as a missed business opportunity. The rules are changing. Philanthropic institutions are funding projects at commercial enterprises. Corporations are sponsoring more public media initiatives. Their primary interest is in results and impact. And the best way to do that is through the power of public-private partnership. There is untapped potential that is only 
emerging. There are some early signs, like ProPublica, of course, newly, newly bestowed of another Pulitzer Prize award, working with newspapers and, and, and commercial and public media, NBC's partnership with philanthropic institutions on education and others. This is a good thing because the citizens of this country are at risk of being underserved, especially where it matters most, where many news organizations have abandoned international coverage, science, the arts, education, energy, environment, religion, accountability, and investigative journalism. These are not the profitable aspects of the business. These are not the areas where advertisers are going, boy, I really want to, I want a big presence in that investigative report you've got coming up. Doesn't happen. That's why these partnerships are so important. They are key to our strength as a democracy to continue to deliver this content. So I would urge all media to abandon your preconceived notions about who you will work with and how. Well, dearest public and commercial media, I am done with my lecturing for now. I'm going to take a week at the beach <laughs> to redirect my deep thoughts on something a little closer to home, which is what I'm going to do next. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask, uh, I'd like to ask the first question and then we will uh, open it. Um, I think that this is a, probably a room full of people who are regular listeners to public radio. And many times public radio and NPR are conflated. They're really right. not the same thing. But <clears throat> recently Congress, the, the House of Representatives, passed a law, which did not become law, but passed a law that would have made it illegal for local public radio stations to spend any federal money that they mm -hmm. got buying programming from national public radio. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> that was just the most recent vehicle and strategy for undermining federal funding <coughs> of public broadcasting period and, and public radio in particular. I want to ask you, I, you know, it's off the table for the moment, but yeah. probably it will be back next year. And I want to ask you your opinion, and Charlie, you too, about what would happen if that should happen. Because there are schools of thought that say, actually, if the feds get out of public radio funding, it might not be such a bad thing. Uh, on the other hand, there are many also who think that it would be a terrible thing for an array of reasons, not the least of which was the damage that it would do not necessarily to NPR, because local public radio stations have to have NPR programming. So they would spend the money they raise on NPR programming and probably have less for their own programming. But I, I, what I'm asking you is, if per adventure, the federal government does cut that funding off, what would be genuinely the impact on NPR and mm -hmm. on public radio and public broadcasting period? Yeah. Well, let me, let me first lay out a couple of facts about what funding and how it works across the system. And then if you want, you know, Charlie, you can talk about your specific example of your station, although you're, you're, you're not necessarily <coughs> typical, I, I, I don't think. But uh, so, the, so federal dollars are distributed uh, through the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. The Corporation for Public Broadcasting, CPB, their total budget is about $450 million. Of that, a lot of it, most of it, uh, goes to public television. Uh, 90 million goes to public radio, 90 million total. The public radio economy overall is about a billion dollars. So it's about 10%, a little less than 10%. So across the entire system, if you were to even the whole thing out, about 10% of the revenue to public radio stations comes <coughs> from the federal government. 
An additional 10% uh, overall across the health system comes from state government. Some states don't provide any funding whatsoever, but some of them do. Um, but here's the rub. And now, uh, that all, almost all that money goes to, uh, to to public radio stations. In terms of NPR, NPR gets no allocation whatsoever from the CP, from CPB, none, zero. But what NPR does is <coughs> is apply for some competitive grants. There's some small competitive grants that are provided each year, and roughly on average, every year NPR gets some money from these competitive grants. It usually comes out to be about two percent of the total NPR budget. NPR budget's about 161 million dollars, so it's it's about three million dollars a year. So that, that's just the math <coughs> to give you an idea. Now, the stations license programming from NPR. They don't have to. You said they, they have to. I mean, obviously, they you don't, don't you have to. to but right. if, if they don't have yeah. morning edition and, and right. all things They want to, you know, right. Yeah. But they also license programming from PRI, which has This American Life, or APM, which is Marketplace, and Garrison Keeler. They make their own programs. So any given station's got a mix of programs. Um, you know, so that 10% goes for every, you know, that, that their total budget goes for licensing programs, producing programs, keeping the lights on, keeping <coughs> the radio towers operating, all of those things. But the thing about that 10% of that's federal dollars is not, it, it really depends on the market. The larger stations that are more, uh, more successful at raising money in other ways, it can be significantly lower than 10%. The flip side is some underserved areas, particularly areas that are rural underserved areas, that don't have a lot of opportunities for corporate sponsorship, they don't have a lot of philanthropic revenue. There, the, the, the federal dollars can be as much as 30, 40, 50 percent. There's a station uh, <coughs> manager I was talking to a couple of months back who said that combined uh, federal and state uh, dollars represent 70 percent of his budget. I, I don't know how he survives that if that's gone. So, so the rub here is that the, the, the stations that would be the most hurt would be the ones that where people don't have access to other free, over-the-air quality, high-quality news and information. So there's there's the challenge. It's punishing the underserved. So <coughs> leaving their interests aside, how badly damaged would NPR be if? Well, I mean, I mean, if if you took the funding away and yeah. you also took away. The, I mean, as you say, it doesn't get direct funding, but, right. but it, it's a constant bone in the throat of, of, well, of some members of Congress. It is. It certainly is. Well, here's a couple of ways that NPR, uh, that why it would be bad for NPR. That, like I said, the direct funding is not a lot, but I got to tell you, uh, most of the the, fed, the the limited federal dollars that NPR does go to is for projects that there's no other. There's no sponsor for, there's not, things like um, um, uh, NPR Labs, which has developed radio for the hearing impaired. They have developed technology for radio for the hearing impaired, sort of a whole closed caption system. That came from a, that was funded by a CPB grant. So things that are really sort of forward-looking, technology, ways to reach, again, underserved audiences. Uh, so that would, that's in terms of the direct dollars. But in terms of if, if, if the stations are hit, how would it affect NPR? Stations obviously pay a license fee to NPR, so certainly there would be some reduced license fee. The audience would go down overall um, if some stations go out of business or they have to cut <coughs> programs. Then they might cut some NPR programs. They'd cut a lot of other programs. Once the audience go down, the, the rates that corporate sponsors pay would go down. So it would have, it would have a ripple effect. I don't, it's, I don't think it would put NPR out of business, and some have said that 
The flip side is there would be a tremendous case for philanthropic support, but you do worry about sustainability. Mm -hmm. Charlie, do you have any thought on <laughs> that? <laughs> no, I have lots of thoughts on it, I, but <laughs> none of them are terribly, um, uh, I don't have a great conviction on it. I flip back and forth on this topic a lot. I mean, WBUR has, uh, gets $1.3 million a year from CPB, which is about 6% of yeah, our um, our budget. So, you, you know, I mean, we've, we've mapped out some of the <coughs> possibilities here, and I think we feel fairly confident that um, if we were to uh, lose that money, we would make it up in, in donations at least the first year or maybe the second year. But, you know, if that's, you know, 12, 13, 14 million dollars over 10 years, at some point it may be that that money uh, sustaining that, uh, as Vivian said, would be a problem. But I actually <coughs> don't think so. And I, I think, you know, BUR is one of the largest, probably one of the top six largest budgeted stations in the country. So I, I don't think that we are typical. Um, uh, sometimes I think, uh, given the ugliness and, and that uh, it's happened and what happened to Vivian with this O'Keefe video, which I, and I deeply regret that the board accepted your resignation. I haven't had a chance to say that <laughs> to you, Vivian, but I might as well tell you. Well, thank you. I think it was a terrible mistake on a lot of different levels, and Vivian did a a brilliant job in her two plus years there. Um, uh, sometimes I think it would be very good if we just cut the knot uh, and raised a trust, you know, maybe a couple of billion dollars, which I think is not with, uh, beyond the realm of possibility with the incredible passions that people have. Uh, a couple of billion dollars would throw off at a minimum a uh, hundred million dollars a year. Um, which could be, which is more than what uh, CPB gives to the public radio stations now. I think that's entirely possible. It also saddens me, though, that we're at a state now where the, these charges of partisanship are are so debilitating. Um, and then I flip uh, back and forth because sometimes I think that a great um, and large and uh, <coughs> impactful journalistic organi organization should not be taking money from the major institution that it covers. There's a fundamental conflict with that and that we'd be better off journalistically not doing that. And then the flip side is that I think that um, this money uh, which began in the Johnson administration was a statement of the values of the country, uh, where their tax dollars should go. And um, what and it's a small amount of money. I can't remember what 0.02% of the budget or 0.002% of the, it's a tiny little fraction of the money uh, of the budget. And I think um, if uh, that money is forsaken and there's no will on the part of the American people to support funding these important institutions, cultural and journalistic, then it says something about where we are as a country that saddens me. There was a, there was a, just sort of, jump in, there was a, CNN did a poll asking people, uh, did a random sample, uh, asking people how much of their, of the federal uh, budget went to public broadcasting. They asked people what percentage, and, and basically the number that came out on average of all the respondents was a hundred and eighty billion dollars. <laughs> <laughs> so a hundred eighty. It's like five percent. It was like five percent, which would be a hundred eighty billion dollars. It's less than half a billion, and and for public radio, it's ninety million. So 
I, I was going to suggest that they, that a deal be struck, saying, you know what, we'll take, we'll just take half of them. <laughs> <laughs> Let me open the floor. Yes. Hi, my name is Arthi, and I have two very different questions. You can do both or either. Uh, one is uh, going back to the firing of Juan Williams. One of the most interesting commentaries I read about that came from Farah Chadea, who's a, an alum of HKS as well. And she said, do, in Huffington Post, do I think NPR fired him because he is black? No. Do I think NPR kept Williams on for years as the relationship degraded because he is a black man? Absolutely. And so I'm just curious, what do you think about that? Because I thought it was a very different take on something that got a lot of play and obviously um, lasting effects. Uh, the second question has to do with investigative reporting and local affiliates. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, where do you see local investigative reporting capacity really going in the NPR network, really growing, that is, uh, and where do you think it's not growing but really needs to? Um, well, uh, I'm happy to take both of those. I'll take the second one first. And uh, On investigative reporting, NPR has had done a lot of investigative reporting, some fantastic investigative reporters that have been in NPR for quite a number of years, Danny's Wordling, Laura Sullivan, who has walked away with just about every single award this year. Uh, but it wasn't until about a year ago, right now, that we launched our first actual investigative unit with, you know, with a proper editor and, and a really concerted effort and, and computer-assisted reporting and all of the bells and whistles of investigative reporting. And they actually, I, I've joked before about, you know, we don't partner very well. That investigative unit is at the forefront of partnership. They've partnered with everyone, which is fantastic. So I think that, that you know, that now that they've gone through one cycle and the, you know, the critical attention, which helps bring in philanthropic dollars, has, has, has grown, I think. I, I have high hopes for that unit. And so, you know, they, they do incredibly <coughs> wonderful work. And the great thing, and again, coming back to the unique nature of the local national at NPR is that, um, the investigative unit is partnering with stations <coughs> at the local level to do um, to do joint reporting, you know, or to you know the, 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 the national unit will look at national trends, and then the the local groups will um, look at, at local ramifications. For example, the investigative unit working with the Center for Public Integrity did a very in, uh, in-depth investigation on sexual assault on campuses, and then a lot of the local stations drill down on what the situation in their communities. Um, so uh, there's a lot more work to be done. Well, but do you think that the uh, my sense is from Arthur's question is yeah. how robust is the is the appetite <coughs> and resource sort of uh, commitment at the local level to investigative reporting for public? It seems to be tremendous. Radio my experience in visiting and talking to stations and and, and I know is this is odd. Yeah, I, just, I actually yeah. did a project with the I team. So oh, okay. Well, yeah, oh, well, happy. there you go. <laughs> and and, I, and I, I know you know this, but I just have to be really clear. I I don't. I just have to say this as a blanket statement. I don't speak for NPR anymore, so I just want to make sure. You know, I don't work there, so I'm telling you about my experiences, but I just want to be careful. Nobody thinks I'm speaking as an official person at NPR. I'm not. Not that I have anything bad to say. I just, just want to be really clear about that. But um, when I would visit stations, there was tremendous appetite for um, a lot of the, the local stations rightly are seeing that, that a competitive, well, both a, a gap and a competitive advantage in doing more investigative reporting at the local level. So I think I think you will see more amount of that grow. And uh, the, the uh, NPR had launched, a, just launched a project called uh, uh, Impact of Government, which was, dis it, which is eventually will put at least two reporters in every state to look at the, to do enterprise reporting uh, about the impact that local government, that state and local government decisions are having on the citizens. Because this is area where a lot of media is walking away. And that's, that's the public, public media sweet spot. Um, 
in terms of your question is about diverse, I'm going to take <coughs> questions. I, I, instead of talking to about Juan Williams, let me just say a couple of words about diversity. Diversity is, is, is challenging in any media organization. I think as, media, as, as a media industry, a journalism industry writ large, we are doing a poor job of this. I, I'm trying, I, I don't have the statistic at the tip of my tongue, but I think I saw that the percentage of African-American journalists and newspapers overall actually declined in the last year. If I think I saw that in the Pew study, maybe somebody remembered. Uh, in public radio, uh, at least at NPR, I will say that our, 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 our track record was mixed. I mean, over the last 30 years is, is mixed. Um, and uh, so we, we put in place an effort about a year and a half ago to really focus um, on improving for, four areas. One, um, who's working at NPR? Uh, two, uh, what is the environment? At it? What, once you're inside the organization, do you feel welcome? Are, are differences accepted? Do people have room for uh, advancement? Third, content, of course. What are the stories? That we're running are they both uh, are they both uh, something that will resonate with with audiences of color and also for white audiences help them understand the more this diverse this more increasingly diverse nation we're in and fourth audiences how do we reach more diverse audiences and so there's um, been tremendous uh, steps taken in all those areas including reporter hiring you know of course you don't unless you know who they are you don't know the color of the person you're listening to but it, I can assure you that it's better than it was and um, and, uh, and on content, we've made a lot of strides. For instance, we put in place about six months ago for the first time, editor, uh, first time ever, a dedicated editor whose sole responsibility is to uh, is sourcing bookings uh, across, all, not on subjects of diversity, on anything, whether it's Afghanistan, the economy, whatever it is, to make sure that the people that our reporters and our hosts interview are from a broad spectrum. So there's a lot of work to be done. It's, you know, it needs, it needs constant perpetual attention, and it's getting better. Good. John. Uh, yeah, uh, sir, uh, um, two-part uh, issue. First of all, um, occasionally when I'm out of town, I end up renting a car, and they all uh, have this serious radio in them, the digital radio. And, and you mentioned car manufacturing, I guess more and more having them. When the first question is, do you see much of a threat from satellite radio to individual um, and uh, public radio stations. Um, and the second question is, I really want to get back to shortly after you resigned, and I heard on NPR a report with the creature that created this thing, and it's unbelievable. I mean, it's sort of like the uh, Julian Asante or whatever, of, um, he takes a piece of, uh, of, uh, of, of talk and completely refigures uh, it. And how can we protect ourselves against <coughs> it? And was it, was it O'Keefe or was that, a, is that the right It was O'Keefe, yeah. Yeah, I mean. It wasn't him personally. Exposed by Glenn Beck. Right, by Glenn Beck. Oh, right, I know. <laughs> but it was on the <laughs> One but, of the many twists in all of this. But, I mean, how can that be kept from happening again? Because it was, I mean, the NPR interview, I must say, was fabulous with the guy. It was David fucking Flexit. Yes, yeah. it was just. He's I listen really to BUR <laughs> all the time. I'm yeah. not saying that just for Charlie. But yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> let me show you my range. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. uh, well, I'll take, let me take them, uh, take them in order. Um, satellite radio, uh, you know, until now, really, your only option other than broadcast radio is satellite radio. And NPR has had two channels on satellite radio for, I don't know, four or five years now. Uh, based on our research and analysis, we think there is virtually no impact on station listening whatsoever. 
Um, it's 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 a different animal. Uh, not to mention the fact that the two tentpole programs, Morning Edition, All Things Considered, don't run on satellite radio. Mm. I think that the I, I think <coughs> personally, satellite radio. I think HD radio, both of those technologies are sort of transitional platforms that <coughs> are not going to be all that relevant in short order because I think the killer app is internet radio. There, there, there's no doubt in my mind. Internet radio, if you have internet radio, you don't need satellite radio. You don't need HD radio. You have everything. You can create your own channels. You've got Pandora. There will be, you can listen to BUR, you can listen to KQED in San Francisco here in Boston. You can listen to anybody. And I think um, it is both a tremendous opportunity for public radio. It is also a tremendous risk, because this is I'm purely specu this is pure speculation. But just like uh, in text, where niche providers came in to dominate, you know, people have often let me just take one step back. People have often asked me why are there no competitors in NPR? Why isn't anybody created in NPR? And the reason is it's tremendously it would be tremendously expensive to set up an operation like this, cost prohibitive. But if, if Politico wants to come in, and once there's a market in cars and create political radio that is just solely about politics, they can do so and probably will do so. So you can get sort of pecked to death by all of the ducks of niche content on radio in the same way that the general news providers have been. And I think that's a potential risk. And it hasn't happened today because there hasn't been a platform like internet radio. But surely there will be. So what is, you know, that's where I was getting at. Public radio has to be its own disruptor. And think about creating these channels now before not waiting for somebody else to do it. And O'Keefe, you know, I don't, I, I don't really have any words of wisdom <coughs> about that, quite honestly. Um, can it know. happen again? I mean, can of we course it can happen again. Of you, for those of you who might not know, uh, what happened was that this guy O'Keefe uh, did an interview with a, a fundraiser for National Public Radio and then took the interview. Meeting. Uh, no, it was just a lunch. Meeting yeah. in which some, you know, an array of things were said and cut the, uh, the, the tape, if you will, in a digital form to be very damaging to NPR. And that's what uh, prompted the, the, you know, the flap. And it was only revealed later by Glenn Beck uh, that he had really gained the, uh, the, the interview. He had really left out a lot of things that would have mitigated uh, greatly what appeared to be what was said and so forth. I mean, it was, a, it was dishonest. And that is the point I think John was yeah. trying to get. And he's did the same, you know, he's the same guy that did, you know, Planned Parenthood yep. and Acorn and others. Uh, okay. I, will, will, will he strike again? Of course he will. I mean, there's no question. I mean, he's, he's been successful in his, you know, if you defining success as he does, right? So. Well, let me, I mean, just hypothetically, if what, if what had been known was known later <coughs> about this had been known at the time, do you think it would have made any difference? I'm sorry, which, which part? The full tape? Yes. Well, we got the full tape. It, 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 I mean, it all happened so quickly. I don't know. I'm, it's not for me to say because I wasn't there. So mm -hmm. I was, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, the edited version came out, you know, the Tuesday morning, whatever the date was, <coughs> and, and I, um, and, and the board accepted my resumation that night. So I didn't, I didn't, uh, That's I didn't, I didn't weigh in on, on, on it. Yeah. Can, I, uh, can I respond to that? Yeah. Sure. <laughs> By saying that I think, yes, if, I mean, the, the unedited tape was out, but 
I don't think anybody had time to look at it. And ironically, the Blaze, Glenn, Glenn Beck's website, <coughs> some young woman there went through it over a matter of a couple of days, I think it took, him, took her to do it, and pointed out all the areas where it had been misleadingly edited. And I feel strongly that if uh, the NPR board had uh, taken a breath and uh, carefully examined this, that uh, there, it, there would have been a, a, a real likelihood of a different outcome. No. <laughs> As you uh, just stated, in terms of the uh, capacity of the internet to carry radio stations or radio content, it can also carry video or television content. So, uh, why uh, do uh, content providers or public broadcasters need either stations or an allocation of spectrum today? Secondly, uh, would the public be better off if uh, NPR and PBS were true networks rather than program service providers? And thirdly, um, would the public be better off if public broadcasting were to engage in providing overt advertising rather than enhanced corporate underwriting that looks like, walks like, and quacks like an advertising? <laughs> <laughs> I think, let me just make one uh, explanation for some of you because this is not, this is not widely understood. Yeah. <laughs> Both public broadcasting in the television form and in the radio form uh, is thought of as a network, but it's not a network. It is all of these individual television and radio stations are individually, effectively, individually owned, individually managed, are programmed very individually, and act in concert like herding <coughs> cats. They do not. They do not. They're competitive with each other in kind of complicated ways, and as Nolan, I think, is getting at. There is no way to deal with them or to marshal them uh, to do anything in concert except by their voluntary sort of cooperation. And, and NPR is a membership organization. So um, NPR was set up to create, uh, you know, to, to provide centralized services to stations that want them and also to create, you know, do the national and international coverage and create these programs so that each individual <coughs> station can have, a, have to have a reporter in Baghdad. But, but there is no NPR radio station. That's right. It is like WBUR that uses right. NPR programs. You know, I, I want to I push back on your hypothesis of, you know, uh, about not needing stations. I think stations are the key to the success of public radio. Not and. Uh, it's uh, and again, I would be saying this even if Charlie were in the room. And I don't work for NPR anyway, so you, you know I'm <laughs> I'm not speaking some corporate lie. The um, the public radio, the stations are the heart of public radio. And and yes, you know you listen to and there's brand confusion. There's no question. Uh, you know I would you know as I would visit stations all over the country, big stations, little stations, and sometimes the station manager would bristle. We'd be standing together, and someone would talk come up, up and say to both of us, oh. I just listen to NPR all day long, and of course, what they meant is they listen to that station. And so, you know, uh, my theory about that is just, you know, don't fight it too much. If, as long as they're listening, that's the main thing. But in fact, what the listener, even in their brand confusion, doesn't understand is what they are getting from their station, from the good stations. And not every single one of them is spectacular, but many, many, many of them good. Is it really a, a, a blend of the NPR national international reporting? and the local and the regional reporting, and the flavor of the community. In so many 
communities that I've been to. The local public radio station is not just an anonymous media company. In many communities, they are the only locally owned and operated news organization in the entire town mm -hmm. or city. Because newspapers, local television stations earn, owned by parent companies, there you have the board, the chief executive, the ownership, the bricks and mortar, right, lo locally, uh, centrally located, and also many of them literally open their doors to the community and do all kinds of community events and are really part of the fabric of the community. And that is essential to that, what I was talking about earlier in my remarks, that sense of um, community and, um, and, and, and communion with the people in the community that you cannot really have as a national brand. So I believe strongly in, in the notion of local stations. <coughs> and speaking of broadcast radio, I mean, even though, sure, you know, we can look into the future and, and you know, and, and I'm talking about the thread and the opportunity of IP radio, but the fact is, right now, at this moment, broadcast rate, b listening to broadcast, over-the-air listening to NPR member stations is growing. This is a, a phenomenon that doesn't exist, I think, in any other of the legacy other news organizations, where the core platform, digital, of course, is growing. Everybody's digital is growing. But the core platform audience is growing. So, you know, I wouldn't write broadcast, you know, off yet. It's, I'm just <coughs> saying prepare now, you know, be there now. Because the, the shift, the balance will shift. It, 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 of course it will. Yes, Alexis. Uh, I just want to get back to the tail of the tape. Okay. Um, because I think one of the things, I mean, you can argue about how it was edited, but I think one of the things that was shocking to journalists was that the same standard of skepticism that's supposed to inform the way we approach sources in our reporting uh, did not seem to prevail on the fundraising side of this. I mean, this was a guy who turned out to be a repeat offender. Um, you know, are, are you asking why did they have the meeting with him? Yes. Okay, that's perfectly a question. So we were approached, our development department was approached by these folks who were purporting to be, I forgot, Muslim Education Action, mm -hmm. something like that, I can't remember. Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, I give them credit, they went to extraordinary lengths. They created a website, not only created a website, but if you put their name in a Google search, you get the website and you also get references through other links. So it wasn't like, you know, you went to Google and there was like only one citation. Uh, they, they called, they said they were interested, introduced themselves to the development part and said they were interested in, in donating money to NPR. And so Ron Schiller, who is our head of development, who is not related to me, um, and his deputy went to have a preliminary meeting with them. That's what that was. It was a preliminary meeting. There was nobody brought signing documents, I mean, nothing. And um, so, you know, there's some misunderstanding that somehow this was a a deal that was about to be made. I mean, they they pushed after many, many times saying, we're ready to bring over the $5 million check. We were trying to find information. We couldn't find information about, we couldn't find their 990s. We could not mm -hmm. find information. I was on a call with, with, with one of them at, at one point, and he said, well, we're just ready to come over. I'm like, well, time out. We, we, you know, thank you for your interest. It's very flattering, but, you know, who are you? So, um, you know, so I, I have no problem with the fact that they went and had this first meeting. It's you do that with any donor. That's quite a that's quite a long way from you know we've you know we're holding a check and we're about to hand it to the mm -hmm. to the bank. So, do you think the story was accurately reported from uh, 
of that aspect yeah, yeah, yeah. of it. Yeah. Some people reported it accurately, mm -hmm. but you know, it's there was such a blur of blogs and tweets, and you know, it, you have to look for the whole story mm -hmm. pretty carefully. Mm -hmm. Yes, sir. On the Muslim uh, event, I had a personal experience calling the on point station in the very first seconds when you can get in <coughs> with a question which is screener. My question is, who screens the screeners? Uh, the question was, this was in connection with the program on the uh, cyber attack on the nuclear establishment in Iran. And my question was, the Iranians are very intelligent people. They may have a fallback position, uh, not known, and therefore uh, saying that this damaged their prospects of developing nuclear weapons by several years may not be, may not be correct because they may have a, a, a plan B. What is, what is your okay, question? The question is this. I talked to the screener, and the screener almost immediately <laughs> told me, already many people asked that question, and immediately came back and said, no, it's not acceptable. Of course, nobody asked that question. And I talked to several acquaintances, and why was my question not accepted? One, one was... One reaction was people said, maybe they have an Iranian mole, unlikely. <laughs> the second, maybe they, they have, wow, you they have, really good, <laughs> have a hope to get yeah. uh, Muslim money. Because otherwise, why this question, which pertains to national security, maybe the, well, why, why was okay, not accepted? Well, let, me, let me broaden your question, because okay. this is a question that I think has is, been, you know, NPR has been criticized for being too critical of Israel and for being too sympathetic to one side or the other. I mean, and avoiding all kinds of things. Yeah. So how do you respond to these charges? Well, I mean, I can tell, I've worked, NPR is the third major news organization I've worked in, and every place I've been, we get, you know, this is a, this is a constant refrain. It's a, it's a, you, you cannot report on, you know, the Middle East or Iran or anywhere in the, in the Central Asian region without getting criticism from all sides. It's just a fact of life. Um, and so, yeah, we, we, we certainly uh, got a lot of that at, at NPR, but, you know, and, and, I, and I give my predecessors credit because this was bef before I got there. There was, because there was so much attention, now I'm talking, you're talking about Iran, I'm talking about now the Palestinian-Israeli issue because that tends to be the hotbed issue. We have an independent, aside from our ombudsman, their, oh, sorry, I've got my friend, aside from their <laughs> ombudsman, NPR also has a third party, uh, his name has slipped my mind, he lives here in Boston, I'll think of it in a minute. A third-party reviewer whose sole job is to review and write a quarterly report on NPR's coverage of the Middle East with a, with a skeptic's eye about fairness. And every quarter, you can find it on the NPR website, is a full list, a link to every single story about, uh, about the uh, Israel and Palestinians and, and his report saying, you know what, they got this one right, they got this one wrong, this one's a little, not right or wrong, so much as imbalanced, didn't have enough sources, didn't have enough voices from the other side. So, you know, we take these, every news organization, every serious news organization, you know, you, you, you take criticism seriously, but it just comes with the territory that you're going to get a lot of criticism. Why do you think the question was not accepted? Uh, she doesn't know. I don't know the answer. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Yes. I just wonder if you think in recent months NPR has been <coughs> punished by its own, a bit, a, a, an organization that looks behind the headlines but has been punished by maybe its own or our society's political correctness. In the sense that as a, as a listener, when I heard the Juan Williams story, I like Juan Williams, I, I wasn't upset by what he said about being nervous on plane. I thought, gee, this is really unfortunate that this all happened. But I didn't stop listening to NPR. 
And when I, I didn't see the corrected video, but when I watched that video um, put out by O'Keefe's people, I thought the Muslim accent sounded fake. But other than that, it was just <laughs> a, like a reason. There's a reason for that. Like, no, it sounded fake to me, uh, or, or, or Middle Eastern yeah. accent. But in terms of, of it being a meeting with someone who wants to give you $5 million, it, no matter what it is they ate for lunch, which was a big thing about their, their drinking Zinfandel or whatever it was, didn't bother me. And I felt like and hearing you speak today, I think you are just incredibly insightful and uh, you know, people should listen to you for the future <coughs> of public radio. But when I saw your comments that came out, you know, while this was happening, it just seemed like, you know, quick denial. And it just, it, it almost seemed like NPR couldn't look at its own news story and go behind the headlines. And it was just, because NPR isn't used to having this kind of problem. And it just was sort of like, wanted to drop it like a, you know, something hot you had in your hands and get rid of the problem. Uh, you know, I'll, on the one thing, and I've said this on the record probably a thousand times, we didn't handle that situation very well. It, but I have to, you know, there was sort of a meme out in the media that this was about political correctness. It was not about political correctness. It was about journalism. It was about the role, what the role, appropriate role of a someone who is a is a, a news analyst on NPR, and and what it's not that it's not a, it was not about stopping somebody's free speech. It was about if you are a news analyst, in this case a contracted news analyst who appeared three or four times a month on NPR. If you're going to be a news analyst on NPR, what is and isn't okay for you to talk, you know, to, what to, to do on, on other platforms? Not, not, not that this opinion is okay and that opinion is not okay. You just don't offer opinions in the public realm if you're a news analyst. Having said that, we didn't handle it very well. We handle it clumsily. There's no question. We move too fast. Full stop. So, um, but, you know, in, in the latest incident, I, I, I actually disagree with you. I, I felt like we... You know, in my mind, and I've said this in, in recent remarks, I was sort of determined to learn from the mistakes that we made uh, with Juan Williams <coughs> and to slow down. Now, I had a problem with some of the things that, that, that Ron Schiller said. I thought that even though he has no control over news coverage, I mean, absolutely, there's nothing that he does that has any way impacts anything that's on the air. I, I, some of the things that he said to me were... were we're not for anybody to say in a meeting when they're representing NPR we're inappropriate, even in the even in the full version. Uh, but having said that, you know, I w we were not jumping to conclusions. He was, you know, we I didn't take any any uh, rapid action on those. I just said, you know what, these statements are not in keeping with NPR value. Everybody went on administrative leave with pay. Nobody was fired. You know, at least um, as long as I was there. So you to look into it. We were yes. Yes, um, oh, we got one back here. Yeah. Uh, speaking as a former uh, corporate underwriter for WBUR before, <laughs> before I retired, um, I, I've had a problem for years with what I believe um, the public has perceived and through recent events uh, is a kind of a culture of arrogance in NPR. Let me try and back that up to a little personal substantiation. We're running out of time, uh, so please make it very quick. For example, uh, I think the general public took that interview, unedited or edited as it were, as an example of NPR arrogance. For example, would NPR have ever sat down at a lunch with representatives of the KKK for a donation? I think the answer to that is obvious. But, but the point is, um, in terms, sure responding in, in, yeah. in terms of responding, well, the Muslim Brotherhood, I think, is they were, they didn't, they didn't, they didn't declare it says themselves as the Muslim. Muslim Brotherhood. No, it did on not their say. Website. 
did not say. I, they I put that up after. They I put. They, they, put they, they mentioned no, it in wrong. the interview itself. I have the transcript. At they put rate, that up after. Let me just say, in 1998, I sat down with uh, the ombudsman and all of the uh, news directors of NPR when Kevin Close, your predecessor, was president, and myself and another group presented approximately a four-foot stack of, of um, um, factual, substantiated, quantitative criticisms on NPR on the Middle East issue, which you rightly brought up. For two and a half hours, every executive of NPR said absolutely nothing when we asked them very calm, reasoned questions about significant coverage. For example, I, I, Steve I, I, Okay, what is your question? The question is, has the culture of arrogance at NPR been corrected with your resignation, or do you think it persists? That's a little like, when did you stop beating your wife? I, 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 uh, so she was not in this meeting. Yeah, can you explain okay, a public we've had operation yeah, yeah, okay. that we will not even respond? What, okay, thank you. What is your question? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe we could look at the future of public radio a little bit. Um, you were talking about the, th the possible threat of internet radio and cars. Um, uh, 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 I talked with opportunity. A man. Opportunity, exactly. <laughs> well, that's exactly what I'm gonna, what, what I'm going to say. I talked with a, a man who did some pretty extensive work uh, studying the habits of, of internet <coughs> radio listeners, and found that they still preferred, among their many choices, um, you know, terrestrial FM radio. And the primary reason was because it was their local connection, which Pandora couldn't give them, you know, uh, you know, Howard Stern couldn't give them whatever. Um, and he saw that as a potential opportunity right. that public media stations should start to do. So with that in mind, I mean, what can NPR and its stations do with internet radio coming to our next car? The, the, the single most important thing that, that a, a station can do to remain relevant in a, in, a, in, a, in a future of infinite choices is to be deeply, deeply relevant to the community, which most of them already are, but even more so. Because otherwise, what's the point? What's the wh why would you li when you have so many choices? Why would you listen to your local station if you weren't getting what you get, say on BUR, which is the blend of the national and the local? You get everything you need driving to you know driving to work, <coughs> for, you know the, the local and the national. So it is the more local content, more local reporting. You know I you know will go so far, and I said this even while I was still at NPR. So don't think I'm only saying this after I left. You know what? Replace some segments out of. Pull some segments out of Morning Edition, All Things Considered, and put your local segments in, fine. I mean, that's, you know, it's designed to be modular so that you can create the right experience for your community. And that will, that's the, that, that is the key to staying relevant in, 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 in a world of infinite possibilities. And then launch other channels, you know. So What do you mean launch other channels? Launch other, you know, la launch other, uh, I mean, the same way that many stations have HD channels, those same HD channels can be available on internet. So do, you know, an all local station, an all local, you know, whatever. Lo put together, you know, archive, whatever it may be. There's, you know, there's infinite possibilities. You have your own 50s music station. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> BUR can have 20 stations. Uh, I'm sorry, we're out, we're out of I time. Just, I have a comment for that. Is, um, I think as an artist, um, the most important thing that we need is a universal interface. Last night, um, I was searching, yes, for internet. And if you know how to design it, it would be great. Uh, I know. And uh, last night I was searching for Diane Reed show that she had a whole program on the Deepwater Horizon. I painted that whole series. And then trying to search for her show, because I, would, I had been on my car, and it took me 10 minutes to find it. And you know, I'm really good with my computer. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Thank fair you. enough.
Okay, thank, thank you, you very much. much.